full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. So, did you hear the one about the rabbi and Iranian who walked into a radio studio? Well, stick around and see what happens. What makes this episode different from all other episodes? Well, for starters, U.S.-Israel relations are at a giant fork in the road. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is in Washington amid a cloud of controversy. He accepted an invite from Republican House Speaker John Boehner, who unilaterally told him, come and tell Congress about the imminent threat that Iran poses to Israel existentially. And so what was previously just a black or white foreign policy issue has now morphed into a huge lightning rod within the Democratic Party and across both aisles. Israel is suddenly a much bigger domestic political dispute than it was just a few months ago, with many commentators suggesting that relations between Washington and Tel Aviv haven't been this low for decades. So to discuss this topic, we are indeed joined by my rabbi, Michael Knopf of Temple Bethel, Richmond, Virginia. He writes a column for Haaretz's Rabbi's Roundtable blog. He is a Rabbis Without Borders fellow. He sings, dances, does bar mitzvahs, weddings, and uh, Rabbi, will you do the occasional circumcision? You know, I, I've been noted, known to uh, to dabble. Dabble. The correct yeah. answer would have been, in fact, I do them at 30% off. Oh, oh but I wow. digress. I do it just for the tips. Just for the tips. <laughs> and in D.C., Rick Klein, ABC News political director. You could find him at the Note blog on abcnews.com and listen to his delightful podcast, Capital Games. Disclosure, Rick, like myself, your humble host, are, are bar mitzvahed, and I imagine our rabbi is bar mitzvahed as well. So it's essentially, you know, three Jews, three mics at a time of huge controversy. Uh, so let's open it up. Rick, what the heck is going on down there in D.C.? It's a pretty extraordinary thing. So the, it all started, uh, as you know, when, when the Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, gets an invitation from uh, not the President of the United States, but from the Speaker of the House of Representatives to come and explain the uh, the situation regarding Iran uh, to the American people. Uh, this sets off all sorts of alarms at the White House because the protocol is usually you get you go through the White House on these sort of things. It's a head of state who's visiting another country. Also, we know about the Israeli elections that are coming up. So by tradition, according to the White House, this this wouldn't be the time to have a speech like this, but the prime minister accepts the invitation and uh, and, and is coming and is now in Washington D.C. to 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 give this speech uh, before a, a joint meeting of Congress uh, that uh, many Democrats won't be at. Uh, we know that the uh, the vice president of the United States, who's the, the president of the Senate, of course, is going to be very conveniently out of town uh, on a foreign trip instead of being there. Uh, and uh, dozens, maybe even scores of Democrats are, are making it known that they're not going to show up. They're not going to watch the prime minister speak. So uh, this traditionally extremely close, extremely friendly relationship being tested uh, for a lot of uh, domestic political reasons that I would say domestic here in the United States as well as domestic in Israel. Uh, and of course, at the center of this is uh, very real concerns over an Iran deal that the White House is continuing to pursue. Well, really, um, you know, you, you you look at the numbers, the United States still overwhelmingly backs Israel in terms of military support, financial support. It would be hard to make an argument that Israel could exist in that hostile terrain without um, all the intelligence and, and support and money that Washington throws its way. Why take a risk like this? And we're going to we're going to get into this increasingly, especially. Look, I understand if Barack Obama is a lame duck and he got hammered in the midterm elections and he has, uh, you know, however many months left. But Jews have voted reliably Democrat for for time immemorial. I mean, what is the upside? What is the extent of the of the gamble? I mean, we we, we tend to hear that Bibi Netanyahu has huge popularity ratings at home. Does he really need to 
throw down this kind of gauntlet and go uh, whole hog Republican, pardon the expression, Rabbi, uh, <laughs> to assure his election, Rick? I, I don't know enough about his about his domestic situation. I'm sure that he isn't losing much in terms of political standing over uh, confrontations with Iran. I, and, I, and taking on President Obama doesn't lose him much there either. I think the, the, the crux of the debate in Israel has been, do you want to provoke the United States like this? Do you want to uh, poke a friend in the eye, um, such as it is when, with regard to the American administration? Uh, but uh, Bibi is a savvy operator, and I think he knows how this this plays. And I also don't, you know, maybe I'm just not cynical enough yet to to believe that there might not be a real policy objective here. I mean, look, this is a this is a, a very tenuous negotiation. It may or may not work. If it does work, there's a deal. It's going to have to uh, get through a gauntlet in Congress. And there's extreme skepticism, not just among Republicans, but a whole bunch of Democrats, including some Jewish Democrats, uh, close allies of the White House, that do not want to see a deal with Iran and don't think there's any deal with Iran that's possible. And so I, I think from the prime minister's perspective, he, he's outlining this as a uh, not a, just a security concern for Israel, but an existential concern. This is about survival, not just keeping your people safe. And I, I do think that that is is a legitimate uh, and and fair criticism uh, of of the American perspective is that we really can't appreciate what it means to be an Israeli with regard to a nuclear Iran. It's it's not an mm. abstract threat if you're living over there. Rabbi Naf, before we get down to brass tacks, do I address you as Rabbi, Your Excellency, Your Highness, Your Benevolence? What is your preferred title here? I think uh, just rabbi is fine. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, hit me. You, <laughs> you can call a, me. You, you can, can call me benevolence or anything. I'll call you, you want, benevolence, Robin. Rick You got it's it. It's up man. to you, uh, Rabbi. You are a really. You know, you're a young rabbi. You're a young rabbi who parachuted into a, a situation here in Richmond with an old venerable synagogue. Mine. I think it was founded in the 1930s. Um, your your uh, parishioners are. Uh, you know, there's a bifurcation. You certainly feel it when you walk in on a Saturday morning or any event there. There are lots of Holocaust survivors, a lot of a lot of older people who look at the uh, Israel issue as kind of a monolith. You're either against Israel or for Israel. And there are younger people, uh, a lot of whom have you know, since modernized, there are various stages of declension who look at this in various shades of gray, which puts you in an unenviable position, I think, on Saturdays where you have to offer a prayer for Israel. It's not a one-size-fits-all prescription. No, it's not. I mean, the, the Jewish community um, is, uh, uh, is, is not monolithic uh, anymore, if it ever was. And, and, and I think that a, a strong argument can be made that the Jewish community really never has been um, in lockstep, um, except for maybe a few uh, critical moments in, uh, in the history of the state of Israel, uh, where there was much stronger unilateral support within the Jewish community for uh, any given uh, Israeli position, you know, in particular, um, the Six-Day War in 1967 is a good example of that. Um, but uh, for, for much of the history of the state of Israel, there, um, uh, there's been a lot of disagreement in the Jewish community um, about, uh, about the, uh, the, first of all, um, in, in the early days of uh, the Zionist movement, about the, about the uh, wisdom of uh, Zionism uh, in and of itself, uh, and then later, the uh, the direction of Zionism, and in particular its relationship with uh, um, the w- with uh, the Arabs and, and Arab nations, uh, and uh, and a little bit later, its uh, uh, 
process of peace with the Palestinians. There's never been a unilateral uh, consensus uh, uh, among the Jewish community, whether in Richmond or nationwide, um, about what, uh, what what Israel should do. Um, I, I think that uh, um, some of the uh, challenge that uh, that we have in the Jewish community uh, nowadays is uh, is um, a a, a, a debate over the question of can one support Israel and still question some of her uh, policies um, and uh, question the decisions of any particular government of Israel. Um, and I think that that does often fall uh, down along generational lines with uh, with with older generations, especially those who were um, around um, and to live through the 1967 war where uh, where where from their experience, um, uh, Israel was almost literally wiped off the map. Um, and even before that, people who lived to see uh, the, the War of Independence in, in 1948, um, and even those who lived uh, through the Holocaust, um, where you know the question of whether one can uh, question the um, decisions, foreign policy, domestic policy decisions that uh, the state of Israel makes, um, they're much less inclined to question those uh, sorts of, uh, of, uh, of, of decisions. Um, and a younger generation that uh, um, I think uh, um, is largely uh, supportive of Israel, but sees their support of Israel through a lens of uh, um, what they see as a legitimate dissent over certain policies that the state of Israel makes. So it is a very difficult balance. And I see line. you cringing as you describe these things because it's it's a kind of almost a no-win thing. Uh, you know, there, it's a, such a Rorschach for um, a, a lot of Jews today. Some who feel openly apologetic about what's going on in the Middle East. Others. Who are saying no questions asked? I come from uh, Holocaust survivors. I lived through 1967. I know that um, uh, that is our homeland, and we'd be snuffed out if there was a, even a moment of hesitation of support. Uh, having said that, you know, and it's a it's a loaded meaning of life existential question, Your Lordship. What <laughs> does it mean in 2015 to be pro-Israel? So I think what it means in 2015 to be pro-Israel. Um, uh, is uh, that we live in a world um, in which um, the reality of uh, anti-Semitism is uh, sadly still apparent, and we've seen that. You saw this firsthand just three weeks ago by your side. We saw this firsthand a few weeks ago uh, um, right here in Richmond when uh, swastikas were spray-painted just uh, blocks away from, from our temple. Um, we saw it uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago in Copenhagen, and then a few weeks before that in Paris, and, uh, and in between uh, where uh, Jewish uh, uh, tombstones were uh, were ransacked in Germany. I mean, you know, you still see um, really horrific incidents of anti-Semitism all around the world. So I think what it means to be pro-Israel in 2015 um, on. Uh, in a large scale question is that um, uh, the 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 reality, the need for a, a a Jewish state, a sovereign Jewish land, I think, um, is um, more present than ever. Uh, and so what it means, I think, on on the front end is that uh, um, whether or not Israel should exist, whether or not the the question of um, is is Zionism a, a moral positive or not, right? The the question of whether or not a state of Israel is a is a positive good for the world and for the Jews. I think that that to me that that has to be an unassailable question. Um, and and what I see in the Jewish community is that by and large um, the Jewish community doesn't question that, right? The the, the question that exists is um, what's the best way to secure um, Israel for 
the short and long term, right? Um, uh, is it to create a you know a a, a, a tough stance vis a vis foreign enemies like Iran and vis a vis the challenges of uh, uh, of creating a, a viable uh, a peace plan with the Palestinians? Is it to stake out a tough uh, stance with regard to those uh, threats um, and challenges, or is it to adopt a more um, uh, conciliatory stance vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis those kinds of threats? Um, and that, I think, is where the fault lines uh, exist. Sure. Not, not among people who question whether or not Israel should exist at all, but, uh, but what's the best way to secure Israel's long-term peace? Now, Rick Klein, tactically, I don't know if I swilled uh, too much Manischewitz before coming to this here interview. But I'm looking at a table of election results over the last hundred years, and I, I, unless I'm seeing something wrong, the Jews have voted reliably Democrat for every election, with the exception of 1920, when uh, Warren G. Harding rattled uh, the Democrat Cox. I mean, you look through the Reagan era, you look at uh, Clinton v. Bush uh, in 92, uh, overwhelmingly Clinton. If you look at Bush v. Gore, even Kerry v. Bush, and then that followed through into Obama. Of course, he lost some support between 2008 and 2012. But even in the 2012 election, where Bibi Netanyahu was really out there in the open with, with the challenger Mitt Romney, Obama uh, got 69% of the Jewish vote compared to 30% for Mitt Romney. So why this kind of gamble to suddenly throw yourself into uh, uh, something that's going to be looked at with a lot of skepticism by the Democratic voting bloc in the U.S.? I'd love, to hear you, the... I'd love to hear you uh, talk about how that, uh, how the Jewish vote played out in uh, the Harding-Cox election, too. He if knows you, if this stuff. He's a wonk. That's for, that's for overtime. We'll, we'll do that, <laughs> we'll do that in, the, uh, in the separate online version. But uh, so are you asking from the perspective of Obama, why, why does Obama rattle the cage? No, why, why would you come and do this? You have such a reliable voting block. I know Netanyahu personally receives a lot of money from a handful of pioneer yeah. donors in the United States that are overwhelmingly Republican. People like Sheldon Adelson or the, the Fallick family in Florida. Uh, but why come and do this? Why rock the boat? Unless you're absolutely convinced that we are at a fork in the road and there's going to be a generational shift where a ton of Jews are suddenly going to go GOP. Yeah, I think it's well. Two two thoughts that that are are not entirely related, but to hear me out on it. One is we hear a lot about Republicans these days trying to to reach out to African American voters and to Hispanic voters. Now, look, they're not under any pretensions that they're not going to lose African American voters very very badly. But rather than making it ninety to ten, if it's eighty five fifteen or eighty twenty, you're starting to to change some electoral math in a, in a serious way. Now, Jews don't have anywhere near that kind of impact, although there are a couple of states uh, where, you, you know, in, in a Florida, in a Pennsylvania, these are battleground states, you could have a critical mass that if you, if, if you move, then you can change some calculus. But I actually think more important than that is that when you talk about Israel, when you talk about Jewish issues, you're actually touching a lot of important bases with evangelical voters. Uh, and there are there are many evangelicals in this country that believe as passionately about Israel. Even more uh, so. The, more evangelicals yeah, think it, Jews are going to be restored to the promised land than, than actual polling Jews. That, that's right. And and it is, a, it is a huge issue. Defending Israel is a huge issue that you hear among, among conservatives, not necessarily because they want to tap into Jewish voters and, and Jewish donors, but because it is such an enormous existential issue for evangelicals. And, and I think that it's, it's listening to 
to that resonate uh, through a Republican primary. And keep in mind that for domestic politics, we've got a chance here of a, 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 having a real national security election, which is atypical. Usually it's about domestic issues. It's about the economy. Sometimes people get angry enough that they'll, uh, they'll sweep someone out uh, over something with national security, but that's rare. And there's a chance that that builds up, that issue set builds up. And the narrative that Republicans are beginning to weave together of a president who's sort of feckless on the international scene, who stood idly by and even helped out uh, the you know a, a, a deal that was bad for Israel in terms of uh, a nuclear armed Iran, uh, that is part of the story that's that they're trying to tell. So I think sure. it takes on a little bit extra resonance because of that. Uh, Rabbi, going back to 2008, I had to go on assignment uh, uh, two months before the election to Israel to do a story on clean tech innovations in Israel. It was an apolitical story. I wasn't mm-hmm. trying to touch any third rails. Mm-hmm. I was shocked to see how um, seemingly uh, left-leaning people in the country would ask me, what do you think about this upcoming election? And as a parenthetical aside, would say, God help us if Obama wins. Uh, people, people kind of recoiled at everything he represented. They looked yeah. at his middle name. They looked at his child rearing. Uh, they looked at how he was reared, what he said in his autobiography, and there was always this skepticism that I think was exacerbated in 2009 when he took office and gave his famous speech in front of the pyramids. They thought that there was too much of a, a, a conciliation and olive branch given to the, the Arab Middle East. Yeah, so I was also living in Israel in 2008 when uh, when uh, Obama was elected, and, and I uh, sort of watched that play out as well. I think that there was a... Um, um, an interesting and unusual level of uh, uh, distrust among the Israeli public uh, about uh, um, about now President Obama, um, and, and that's you know in part uh, why um, if you know the 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 cynical side of me um, uh, with regard to uh, the Prime Minister's speech now, um, it's pretty good politics for him uh, in in Israel with his upcoming election to uh, to stand toe to toe with uh, with the president um, who is not particularly popular still in in Israel um, and he's viewed you know pretty widely as uh, not being a uh, strong uh, ally um, or, or as strong um, a, an ally as previous presidents have but been what do you have Israel. to do to be strong or not strong I mean are, are, are you're not depriving them <laughs> yeah. of, of of armaments or you know what what was yeah. he supposed to do during the you know the latest Gaza incursion I mean wh- again right. what is that litmus test I never understood it yeah uh, is it a, just carte blanche like the way Bush George W Bush looked the other way well it's an interesting question because because I think that there were a lot of instances in uh, it, where uh, President uh, Bush, uh, both presidents Bush, uh, were uh, were critical of Israeli policies vocally, and uh, you know, and you remember and, the famous James Baker line in front of Congress, like when these guys are ready to pursue peace, here's my number. Right, um, and uh, you know, and I think that uh, you know, uh, President Clinton had his had its moment, had his moments, and you know, there have been plenty of instances uh, in, in the history of the state of Israel where there have been, you know. Uh, major uh, differences uh, and, uh, and and even open hostility between um, uh, American administrations and uh, and the state or leadership of uh, of Israel. And I think that uh, uh, President Obama. This is my personal opinion, and not representing any other Jews' opinion by this. But I think President Obama, on balance, has been a very strong supporter and good friend uh, to uh, to Israel. I think that uh, uh, you know uh, the one of the best and most apparent examples of that is the is is Iron Dome um, and how uh, um, uh, Israel has been able to uh, in an un, uh, 
an unparalleled way defend itself against uh, rocket fire from Gaza because of this incredible technology that Obama that a the president costly technology costly technology that the president uh, by all accounts helped uh, shepherd through passage. So um, so I think that that a lot of it is uh, is is uh, perception, and I think a lot of it. I think you're right. It has to do with uh, um, unfortunately, uh, and this is something that. Uh, um, uh, I had to be very careful about because it's a, it's 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 uh, speculative, uh, but I think that there there is um, uh, um, you know a, a, a level of distrust um, among the Israeli um, and American Jewish population uh, in part because of uh, the president's middle name, um, his uh, his approach to uh, uh, foreign policy in the Arab world, which I think, um, which which was I think born in response to the Bush years, uh, and and what what I think he felt um, was uh, part of his mandate in, the, in being elected in 2008 was saying you know we we took a tactic with the uh, Arab world in response to September 11th that was uh, largely aggressive or at least seen as aggressive and maybe that wasn't the best approach and so maybe a way of pursuing uh, peaceful relations with uh, with the Arab world and uh, and mitigating the danger of terrorism is by extending the olive branch. And I think Israelis were uh, not uh, in favor of that approach. Now hold those sacred thoughts, Rabbi. Full disclosure, this is Robin Farzad. We're talking with Rabbi Knopf of Temple Beth El Richmond and Rick Klein, ABC News' chief political correspondent. Uh, we'll be right back at you. Full disclosure, we're talking about Benjamin Netanyahu's big controversial visit to the United States. Uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, who's been a, a reliable pro-Israel stalwart in the party uh, for her long tenure in office, which is coming to a close. She said yesterday on CNN, no, Netanyahu doesn't speak for me on this. I think it is rather arrogant. I think the Jewish community is like any other community. There are different points of view. I think that arrogance does not befit Israel candidly. I think Israel is a nation that needs to be protected, that needs to stand free, that hopefully can work constructively with Palestinians to have a side-by-side state and to put an end to the bitterness that has plagued this whole area. Rick Klein, you're out there with your finger on the pulse of the Democratic Party and the kind of the, the, the people are just out there saying, how is he kind of making this gambit right now that we're effectively dead meat? Everybody has an eye into 2016. How is this going to endear him, let's say Hillary Clinton uh, becomes the Democratic nominee, which she looks like the prohibitive favorite to do so. What right. kind of comeuppance would Benjamin Netanyahu feel if Hillary Clinton, who, after all, was Barack Obama's foreign policy point person uh, for much of his administration, rises to the White House? I, I think that's a, it's an interesting question. I, I think the, there's a there's a there's a depth to the Clinton Netanyahu relationship that has to be kept in mind as well. Uh, and there, there wasn't a, a particularly strong point in the U.S.-Israeli relationship. We know of some uh, chilly moments during Obama's first term when Hillary Clinton was, of course, Secretary of State, and uh, there were. I think that context is important here because it's not. This is not just a one-off. I, I don't know anyone who believes. 
I don't know anyone who believes Netanyahu when you know, he says he didn't realize that this was a breach of protocol. He didn't realize that only the president should be making calls like this. This guy's been around a long time. He knows a lot about diplomacy. He knows uh, he's got very close relationships with lots of American politicians. As you'll recall, he was uh, he worked early in his career uh, alongside Mitt Romney at Bain Capital. So th- these are th- this is a savvy guy who understands the niceties of American politics, and he knew exactly what he was doing when he accepted this invitation. And there's so of course that... there's that specter of Ron Dermer here, who is uh, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, if you want to explain his role there, that people say that 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 role. Uh, you know, as Israel's ambassador to the United States, should not be politicized uh, so openly as it is with his links to the Republican Party, that it serves no one's interest well. Well, I, I think look the, the the Netanyahu government can can make its own alliances with these things, and and it, it knows at bottom that you know when you're when you're sending a message like this to uh, to the Obama White House that it, it's going to be received in, in a chilly way. Is it is it is it the I this is a bad analogy to use, but is it the nuclear option if you're if you're Netanyahu? No, and he knows how far to push it and how not to push it. This is not going to result in. Even what some other diplomatic standoffs have had in the past, no one here is talking about uh, this uh, this little snafu, meaning that we shouldn't be continuing to, to provide aid in vast quantities, military and financial, to, to Israel. No one is saying that, and I don't think they have to jeopardize that relationship. And I think even if even if Netanyahu were to show up once a month in Obama's backyard between now and 2016 to 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 try to you know personally persuade members of Congress to buck him. A president, Hillary Clinton, is still going to consider Israel an extremely close and vital ally. There is a policy disagreement here that means more to the Israelis than it does to most Americans. And I think if it wasn't for that, Netanyahu wouldn't be playing this. He's got ample opportunity to play politics in other ways. And parenthetically, I will tell you that I don't know how this this squares with diplomatic protocol, but to the extent that both Obama and Netanyahu are in Washington, D.C. right now, they can, in theory— uh, you know, share the peace pipe in the White House right now. It is legal to have kosher marijuana together in small <laughs> increments. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, you it's know. a federal. It's not a federal problem. Yeah, no, federal that problem. they have the, you know, they have the micro brew over there. You know, you could you could cross brand <laughs> it with Gold Star beer or something. There are other there are other ways around this. But I just keep Rabbi harping on the idea that so many diplomatic elements of protocol have been violated here. The fact that uh, you know. The, the, they did this behind the White House's back. That Dermer did it with heavy consultation uh, with the Republican opposition uh, in Congress. Dermer, after all, is someone who helped uh, write the contract uh, with America in 1994 during the Gingrich Revolution. So it's an interesting choice for Tel Aviv uh, to double down on a person who's that partisan in the United States. It is. And first of all, I'm just fixated on the uh, image uh, of the possibility of the prime minister, you know, so sort of showing up on the White House lawn with uh, with with a shawarma and a gold star, you know, and handing it off to uh, the the president or members of Congress, whoever he's going to be. Shawarma. I talk about peace pipe. Why are you cutting the lead, man? Well, you know, uh, whatever. I mean, you know, <laughs> um, kosher peace pipe. I'm not going to take the bait. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it's a rabbi you're talking to, Rob. I'm sorry, <laughs> rabbi. I'm sorry. Um, I repent. Listen, I, I think that if the prime minister has, uh, as he says, um, uh, existential concerns about the deal that's being uh, uh, negotiated between the administration and uh, the Iranian regime, 
um, that it uh, presents a, a threat to Israel's very existence, um, then, you know, protocol or not, diplomatic protocol or not, um, you know, I think that the uh, uh, Jewish tradition um, and uh, the, the, you know, the dictates of morality um, compels him to speak out anywhere and everywhere he's able to um, in, in order to, uh, uh, to, to sound that alarm. On the other hand, I think that uh, uh, to me, more than the diplomatic protocol, or at least related to it, is the question of, you know, if this is truly the uh, the concern that the prime minister has, right? The concern is uh, an existential concern over these negotiations, and uh, speaking out in the way that he's doing is creating so much of a rift, and the conversation about his speech becomes about the speech, right, and about the diplomatic breach rather than the content of the speech, one wonders whether this was the most effective approach to achieving the ends he wants to achieve uh, that he could have taken, right? So I think that from you know my point of view, uh, what Jewish values would say is that when there's an injustice, when there's a, a threat to life, right, a person is duty-bound to speak out. On the other hand, we have to be very careful with our words, uh, knowing that uh, we should choose the most effective path to uh, pursue our ends um, rather than the one that's going to uh, uh, make the loudest and splashiest noise. Now, Rick, I know you're not a foreign policy person, but the Middle East is a really messy balance of power right now. Um, you know, there was this picture that came out, I think, on Reuters last week that uh, in Baghdad, where a statue of Saddam Hussein stood 10 years ago, is now a huge poster of the Ayatollah Khomeini, right? Shiite, Shiite hegemony is back. There's this battle for the soul of the Middle East with the Sunni insurgency of, of ISIL. Um, Iran is suddenly looked at as, you know, enemy of my enemy is potentially my friend. They've been helping us um, and helping the rest of the Middle East fight ISIS. They might have uh, something in common with Saudi Arabia and other Arab kingdoms that typically would have had great disdain for Iraq that, you know, within a matter of six months, there's been an enormous recalculation. You have to give the White House uh, and the State Department some slack for saying, you know what, maybe it is time to try to uh, uh, salvage something with Iran because we need each other uh, much more than we need to destroy each other. Yeah, and, and I think that all of that is an argument for letting giving the president some wiggle room in conducting foreign policy. These are complicated things. In a, a nuclear deal with Iran has enormous implications for uh, probably a dozen different current hotspots with regimes that are untested, uh, some of the Middle East, some of them beyond. I mean, obviously, it could have implications to other regimes that are looking to build uh, nuclear arsenals. There's the hope there that this can change some of the some of the equations in the Middle East. Um, I think if you're the prime minister of Israel, it's a much simpler calculation. And I think that's that's one reason that the president is uh, is disagreeing with the prime minister on this. And, and obviously, the president of the United States has different priorities. So I, 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 that's one of the reasons to me also that I'm surprised to see how how many Democrats have been uh, fiercely saying that this is a bad deal, that actually we need more sanctions, not less right now against Iran, uh, because there is a tradition inside a party to, to defer to the commander in chief, to press or to, to be to be 
somewhat amenable to the argument that he's the one that sees all the intelligence briefings. He's the only one that can take that holistic view. His State Department, all the information flowing in, they understand what's a good deal and what's not a good deal. Uh, and Rudy Giuliani notwithstanding, you believe that the President of the United States is, is a patriot and loves the country and that he's going he's, he's trying to do the right thing. Usually that, that point of view prevails inside uh, one's own party, if not beyond it. So that's one of the extraordinary things here is that this is an issue with such resonance. Uh, and I don't think there's many issues outside of uh, outside of Israel that could draw passions in the United States as strong uh, as strong as they are. And Obama obviously does have a lot riding on this. If you go to the bookends sure. of his time in office, it'll have been eight years when all said and done. He came out in his speech in front of the pyramids, really sparked the Arab Spring, something that has spiraled out of the control of Washington's suasion. And now on the tail end of it, he seems to not have as much clout in the United States. There's a, a overwhelmingly GOP Congress that would wants to thwart him on domestic issues. So he's out there trying to you know, almost the way Clinton did in his final two years of office, uh, banking on a big foreign policy coup to do this. And maybe there's a calculation on Netanyahu's front and uh, the alignment of Likud and the GOP that we can we can kneecap the president in that respect. I think it's probably even broader than that. I mean, remember how this president rose to, to, to prominence. He rose to prominence as someone that was against uh, a, an ill-advised war mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and was an alternative to the kind of go-it-alone foreign policy of the Bush years, and, and even took a lot of criticism for that. There was a very famous debate exchange that I'm sure you guys remember when he was asked if he would he would. Rabbi meet... is a young guy. I don't know if he remembers. <laughs> this is, he was in grade school all the time. But he, in 2007, 2008, he was asked, uh, all the candidates were asked, he and Hillary Clinton among them, would you ask without, would you meet without preconditions with the the leaders of uh, of, of Iran, uh, North Korea, and I believe Cuba was the the third country? His answer was yes, and Hillary Clinton immediately jumped on him. It was one of his most vulnerable moments at the campaign, uh, and, and saying that he didn't really understand the the uh, the full implications of what he was saying, but. This was someone that was going to reset America's role in the world. This is someone who received a Nobel Peace Prize almost before he was in office. This the expectations were huge for him to remake the the the, the whole world map. And looking at the headlines of the last couple of months, it it doesn't look so promising. So the in a deal with Iran would be a game changer if you were president Obama. I do remember that debate exchange, even though I was in diapers at the time. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, if, and if I remember correctly, I mean, I didn't see that as a vulnerable moment. I mean, I think that that, that was an ideological um, uh, shift, uh, an ideological perspe- perspective that uh, that now President Obama has, right, that you uh, sit down with your I mean, the whole point of negotiations is that you, you know, sit down with people that you don't have agreements with in order to forge agreements, right? And if you uh, make preconditions before you even sit at the table, uh, then uh, um, then it defeats the purpose of even sitting down at the table. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. And full disclosure, you should know that I was born in Iran, and we came to the United States as Jews uh, fleeing the Islamic Revolution. But one thing that I think a lot of Jews and a lot of Americans and a lot of uh, uh, spectators of uh, foreign policy don't realize is that, one, uh, Iran has the biggest Jewish population in the Middle East outside of Israel. Uh, Two, Israel and pre-revolutionary Iran were very tight. I have uncles who told me that when there were earthquakes in mountainous regions in Iran, it would be the equivalent of you know the IDF uh, aid force that would be there helping people out of rubble and bringing potable water and digging pipes and whatnot. And that all ended with the Shah's demise, uh, you know, this almost thousand year great 
relationship between this 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 compact between the king of Persia and its Jews, you know, the merchant class. I, I go back maybe two thousand years there. You know, Rabbi, that I show up at events and I say, wouldn't be a party without a Sephardi. Maybe there's a third <laughs> way here. Maybe it's not just Tehran against Tel Aviv one or the other. Maybe, perhaps, mayhaps, you can engage Iran, the moderate elements of Iran, to make them come back to the same, to a similar fold where they were in the 1970s. Certainly the people there love American products, love American pop culture. The Palestinian issue is a lightning rod for them, uh, but things are not as black and white as American Jews oftentimes think. Well, I think I, I think that you're right about that. I mean, so first of all, I think that that uh, seems to me, and I'm not, you know, uh, as as expert in this as some people, but that seems to me uh, one of the beliefs of the Obama administration is that there are moderate elements uh, within uh, among the Iranian people and within the Iranian regime um, that uh, that that can be negotiated. Right, that they're not. Uh, um, um, uh, extremist ideologues, all of them, um, but I think that the uh, that the Palestinian issue among the Iranians, at least, is my perception of it, is uh, is is really a, a a cover for the real issue that which is exactly as you described. I mean, I think that the uh, the. The the Shah um, was and and is deeply unpopular in in Iran, um, which is why there was a revolution to overthrow him. Um, and the uh, close relationship between the Jewish community uh, and and uh, and uh, and Israel more specifically and the Shah um, is exactly why um, uh, there's so much hatred and animosity between uh, between the Iranian people. But a and, lot and of Israel. Iranians look back at this era and say that was an aberration. You know, this was a, a socioeconomic revolution and the, the Ayatollahs glommed onto it. There wasn't something that was intrinsically anti-Semitic about the civilization where uh, Muslim and, and Baha'i and Zoroastrian and Jew coexisted for thousands of years. Oh, I don't think I don't think it has anything to do with anti-Semitism. Um, I think that uh, um, I think it's just in the same way that I think that uh, that the uh, that the um, the animosity toward America that exists certainly among the um, the Iranian regime, but also in some way among the Iranian people, um, is uh, is largely related to uh, the American support of the of the Shah and uh, and the Shah's uh, um, uh, brutality um, uh, against the Iranian people. So I think that um, it's not uh, um, it's not a, an animosity about the American people themselves or about uh, the Israeli people themselves or about Jews themselves. Um, it's uh, it's lingering resentment over um, over those well, alliances. Well, then, Rabbi, let me ask you this. You know, when I toured Israel, uh, it's no secret Israel has a huge nuclear capability. They haven't come out and admitted it. It's a taboo thing to talk about publicly. But for several decades, Israel has been one of the most nuclear-armed forces in the world, and it could fight its own weight. No doubt it did it with a lot of American support. Is there something to be said from the Iranian perspective, suppose there was a semi-stable and non-theocratic regime in Tehran, because this polls with Iranians pretty consistently. They feel like they should have nuclear self-determination, too. Why Israel? Why not another country that might feel threatened by an Israel? It's a tough question. Uh, right. But, you and, know, and we're, I, we're talking about fairness. Right. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm not because I'm not a diplomat and I'm not, uh, uh, you know, as versed in the art of statecraft as I am in uh, the arts of 
Talmud study. Um, it's hard for me to answer that question. You are a full-service rabbi, and I would expect nothing less from you. <laughs> um, you do weddings, bar mitzvah, circumcisions. You could do foreign policy. Uh, but uh, but listen, you know, but uh, but uh, uh, the the philosophy behind uh, you know what countries have the right to nu- nuclear self-determination and what countries don't um, is a really complicated issue. Um, I, I remember the the uh, former UN ambassador Bolton um, saying once that. Uh, he believes that only one country should have uh, nuclear capability, and that's the United States. Um, I'm not sure if that uh, resonates with me, um, but uh, but I think that uh, um, a, a, a democratic country um, without uh, that that's not animated by extremist ideology, but it's, but but is rather animated by uh, I think frankly what uh, um, uh, what the uh, American Constitution is uh, is is dictated by right to provide provide for the general welfare and the common defense uh, and and that it's a government by the people and of the people and for the people to secure uh, those uh, those realities um, I think that that is the kind of country that uh, um, that that can responsibly handle nuclear technology full disclosure we're talking what makes this Netanyahu visit different from all other visits uh, with my rabbi Michael Knopf and Rick Klein, ABC News' political director. Stay with us. ABC News political director, in your political wonky benevolence uh, and omniscience, please tell us what you think the comeuppance might be uh, if this speech, in fact, falls short. Uh, There are Democrats out there. We see members of the Black Caucus who are looking at this as a slight against Obama, the first African-American president, and they're sitting it out. So you can't suddenly, as Israel, rely on the Black Caucus to necessarily be a, a, a reliable rubber stamp voting block. How else do you think the Democratic Party is going to realign around this? Because there are certainly hurt feelings. Yeah, I think that there are hurt feelings. But the Democrats realize that uh, their, their party is pro-Israel. Is uh, Most Jews are Democrats in this country. Uh, this is where the bread is buttered. And um, to some extent, Netanyahu is calling a bluff like that and saying, what are you going to do to me? I, what he's doing is not uh, as I said. It's not the. It's not going way over the top. It's not such a enormous. Uh, but it is a bit scorched earth, right? If you look at someone like a Sheldon Adelson, who who is extremely generous with the likes of Newt Gingrich and the Netanyahu, it immediately casts your lot like it makes Likud almost synonymous with the GOP. But you know, the, but to you know, not to not to pick on your analogy, Robin. This is a part of the part of the world that knows something about actual scorched earth. And some of the disagreements in the past have been about military actions. Uh, and you know, there's certainly there there are military options that Prime Minister Netanyahu retains as the prime minister of a sovereign government in Israel uh, that could put him way more at odds with uh, coming and giving a speech to Congress. I agree. This is a big diplomatic move. And I, I, I do believe, as I said earlier, this is the, the, the prime minister knows exactly what he's doing. But I think he also realizes that the, the backlash for this move in and of itself is likely to be minimal. Uh, there, there have been attempts by Republicans to make inroads among 
among Jewish voters. There have been uh, attempts to kind of rethink Israeli politics over the time. Uh, but but I don't think this is something, like, you know, it's going to be a chilly couple of years here. If, if Hillary Clinton is elected or whoever the next Democrat is, you could see it kind of overhanging that relationship. But uh, again, Netanyahu is a savvy guy. And he knows how to how to hedge bets a little bit and how to talk to, to people in all corners. He's not going to be particularly close to this president. He may not be particularly close to the next president. But the, 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 the U.S.-Israeli uh, bond is, is going to continue to be a close one, and uh, it's just too important an ally for us to risk. I understand the good Reb has a question. <laughs> yeah, Rick. I, I, the, so the question I have is uh, um, you've talked about it a little bit, you know, the, the, the ways in which there would be, you know, political – costs to uh, the prime minister's speech. So I'm wondering what you think are the benefits, right? What, what, what does he gain? What do, what, what, what does, you know, the American Israel relationship gain through, you know, him coming and giving this speech in Congress? I think it is a long play for the prime minister in a couple of senses. First of all, I, 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 I'm not enough of an expert on Israeli politics to say, but I, I, I we're I all experts. That, we're three Jews I, with three I, microphones. That's <laughs> enough. I, I'd imagine that poking your eye, uh, poking President Obama's eye, plays pretty well on the eve of an election. So if he can seal his uh, another term for himself, then that may be all the politics you need to to know or understand. But. He knows that uh, he, he sees the, he reads the papers. He gets the reports. He knows that there is extreme skepticism inside Congress around an Iran deal. That it's not just from Republicans. That Bob Menendez, the top Democrat on the Foreign Relations Committee, is among those saying this is a bad deal. That there's a huge appetite for more sanctions, not less. To, that they could go in entirely in the other direction. And all of those things, if you're worried about either the politics or the policy in Israel, those are things that you can exploit. Rick, wouldn't uh, any deal it, have to be ratified by Congress? It's not like it would just unilaterally ink it. So isn't this it redundant would. to have to go there and, you know, the optics of it? Couldn't couldn't Obama, uh, couldn't Netanyahu just do this behind the scenes with uh, Republican Confederates? But then you're not playing, then you're not playing the big card of, of American public opinion. And that's where members of Congress ultimately are swayed, particularly in the last two years of, of a presidency. If he can move the needle and make people think uh, that or, or accept uh, Iran as a bigger threat than is currently being portrayed, keep in mind the way the president has talked about it. I mean, this is, he, he's had conversations with the Iranian leader for the first time in decades. He's, uh, he's had this, this open hand. They've extended negotiations. You, you're, you see administration officials on television all the time talking about how there's a chance here and that there, there's a good faith negotiation. If you're trying to turn that around a little bit, then you do what um, what the prime minister is doing. I, I, I don't know why this analogy strikes in my head, but you know the, the scene in The Godfather where Sonny publicly disagrees with his dad and, 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 uh, and, and Vito Corleone says that was a really dangerous thing that you just did there. To some extent, the, the disagreements inside the American family are things that, uh, that other, even allies, can take advantage of. And I, I think that's what's going on here. Look, I do not think that, that Prime Minister Netanyahu would have gone to an American Congress that was four square behind the president. He knows that he's got other allies in this. He knows he's got other angles to play here. He knows he's playing a pretty big card with this, and he has a chance to, to make this case in about as high-profile uh, a format as you can in the United States, he's going to take it. And it's not just that. APAC has come out and said, uh, really on the eve of this speech, that uh, 
Any final agreement with Iran must involve the complete dismantling of Iran's nuclear infrastructure. That's something the Obama administration right. says will be a deal breaker at the negotiating table. Uh, you know, they're looking to, 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 to maybe have a more of an attrition plan, slow it down. Incidentally, you know, one form of retaliation could have been U.S. intelligence coming out a week, a week and a half ago and saying that Mossad, internal intelligence in Israel, said that Iran was really far off from having a work, workable nuclear weapons capability. That was maybe intended to uh, uh, embarrass Netanyahu and kind of brush him off and say, look, you know, we are still strong. You come here and step on our toes. The White House is saying we can we can hurt you at home as well. Yeah, I, I, I think there are there are multiple angles to all of this. And, and, and I, I, again, I just I always think about this because I'm a political reporter in terms of individual politics. And it's not just American political figures who play politics. Every good politician anywhere in the world is a, is a politician. And there's a domestic audience here. Uh, and uh, I, I think that I mean, and he comes here he, and he raises a boatload of money. Uh, those sums are just not available in Israel. It's it's money, it's passion, it's popularity, and uh, you know, for for most of the world, even the parts of the world where we we're we're on friendly terrain, these are allies, you know, railing against or, or you know poking the poking the bully, the big guy on the block, that that works domestically. Uh, we get you know we get pretty upset. Think about how upset Americans got when uh, we found out that Putin stole Robert Kraft's Super Bowl ring, right? The little <laughs> the little tiny thing that happened. It was like, hey, you don't do that to us. You know, we get you know we get our we get our backs up. And I, I think... deflate ball for you before the playoff. You <laughs> exactly. give me ring in return. In Russia, B- ball B- deflates and you. A savvy as... <laughs> in Russia, in Soviet Russia, ball deflates you. Very good, Rabbi. Ooh, wow, I'm telling you, this is a, this is a new age Rabbi. He's a, I'm, honestly this. I'm just blown away, Rabbi. This but, but is can, a this is a this is a very controversial topic, and you came here and open-endedly address it. And now you have another point. Well, I, I just want to say, you know, to to Rick's point about the you know the politics, we we forget about uh, you know the the um, political uh, inclinations uh, and motivations of, uh, of of foreign leaders often because we're so you know we, we were fixated on our, our on our own leaders. Um, you know, I, I think that there are some Jews that uh, that you know, um, and and there are ways in which um, you know the the inner political machinations of uh, of Israeli politics um, rub me the wrong way. There's certainly corruption and things like that among uh, among Israeli leaders. But on and, and on some level, as a Jew, um, I want. Uh, Israel to strive to be uh, better than other states and other Israeli politicians to be better than other it's politicians. Like Hebrew national hot dogs. Right. We answer, answer to, to a higher authority. Right, right, right. Uh, but on the other hand, there's something amazing about uh, the fact that, uh, you know, 70 years after the Holocaust, uh, the Jews have a state that has political corruption. <laughs> you know, there's, uh, I mean, <laughs> and, and like, you know, and like, and like political machinations and, and that, you know, like BB has commercials and attack ads and, you know, political country, consultants. And he's a totally guy who cheats on his it, wife. I mean, like, you know, the, the, the I mean, I, listen, happens. I'm not going to touch that, but, you know, yeah. No, not that. But, you know, Rick, <laughs> you, you, you guys were both young. Maybe this was in college when it happened. He overstepped with that attempted assassination. Was it in... Uh, was it in Lebanon or Jordan or something where he had these Canadian intelligence people with Canadian passports try to uh, attack a, a militant and everything? And the king of Jordan, when he was alive, demanded that he send back the antidote. I mean, he's certainly bold, uh, but you know, when you make these big bold strides, you're 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 taking a lot of uh, uh, existential risk personally, especially when you deal with uh, an ally as financially and uh, uh, you know defense vital as the United States. 
yes, and 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 you know we we have a tendency to forget this, and maybe you guys have have traveled there enough to to realize, you know, Israelis they've got a booming tech sector. They you know they worry more about traffic deaths probably than uh, than terrorism deaths on a day to day basis. I mean, the, politics is played at a at a different level than we're able to to understand at any given time. In the same way that you know. That the, the political conversation here can seem very narrow and petty uh, other parts of the world. They're not, Israeli voters aren't just voting based on an Iranian nuclear deal. Right. Uh, they're being, voting on lots of complicated reasons that have to do with national pride and economic self-interest. So, yeah, I mean, like, I, I think... I think Netanyahu would make a great character on House of Cards. I mean, he he's he's he, he's so good at what he does. He wouldn't be successful in this way otherwise. Uh, some of his uh, lectures to to President Obama in the Oval Office <laughs> have been just masterful pieces of of political theater. Uh, I, I just, I'm hard pressed to even think of a second place contender when it comes to that category. So he he is he is he, he knows where his base is, and you've seen some of the blind quotes from Obama administration people calling him a chicken something, uh, among other things. They are they're frustrated by the relationship because this it obviously isn't as strong as it uh, as it should be or as that it has been in the past. Rabbi Naf, one thing we did not talk about here is the stalled Arab-Israeli peace process. Right. And, and the question of Palestine and what happens here. This has been on hold uh, throughout the entirety of really Netanyahu's administration. A lot of irritation over continued settlement building, which even Hillary Clinton needled him over. They felt like he embarrassed Joe Biden before a visit by expanding a settlement operation. Um, how does this all recourse back to and this is a this is a touchy question, but you know you're in a town where you're trying to recruit members to a synagogue. You have younger people. A lot of them uh, uh, have intermarried. A lot of them are are you know they have uh, not very uh, uh, c- close relationships with Judaism's. But when they become parents, they want to maybe settle down in a synagogue. But this is increasingly becoming. Uh, uh, a domestic opinion, uh, public opinion issue. We saw the news out of UCLA last week, which was pretty shocking. It was a, a Jewish applicant to the student board uh, was questioned essentially for her Judaism because how it could affect her relationship with Palestinian student groups out there. And that's UCLA in the year 2015, not Ole Miss in 1915. But increasingly, my point is, is that Jews in the United States find themselves answering for for Israel's action or, or headlines in the news. And so there is a cost domestically. There is. I mean, you know, uh, um, it's it's uh, it's it's virtually impossible uh, in 2015 to uh, separate uh, you know Jewishness uh, from uh, a relationship to the state of Israel. And so, on some level, uh, the decisions Israel makes and the way it acts uh, in the world, uh, whether I like it or not, uh, speaks for me as a Jew. Which is why I think that uh, American Jews uh, 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 do and should uh, have a voice in, um, in in what happens in Israel, even if we don't live there, because it does uh, impact us. Um, and for those of uh, those American Jews like me who, who love and support and want to see Israel flourish, um, I think even more so uh, we have a, a, a skin in the game um, to... to um, uh, but Rabbi, it's hard enough having that conversation at the dinner table where they're, you know, generationally, you know this, you hear this all the time. Like, 
you, you know, my my relatives, the Iranian Jews of of Los Angeles, they are as black and white on this as as you can imagine. If you even question the propriety of Netanyahu's visit, you are deemed anti-Israel. Mm-hmm. There isn't room for a kind of a more nuanced discussion. And so, a lot of a lot of children's, I'll say, my you know, my my peer group, my cousins, they just don't go there. They don't yeah. touch it. And this breeds some sort of of uh, disaffection with the whole idea of Judaism, right? And I think that that's really tragic. I think that may be one of the big uh, tragedies in in, uh, in in at least American Judaism or diaspora Judaism of our time. Um, that uh, that that the the fear is so strong that any criticism of Israel weakens Israel. Uh, that uh, that it becomes a third rail. Uh, that you know privately there are people who will criticize Israel. You know in 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 you know among among friends, uh, and there are certainly people who uh, voice uh, criticism of Israel from a place uh, that that's not born of a love of Israel. And then there's a whole bunch of people that you know that uh, uh, that relate to any criticism of Israel as an expression of uh, hatred of Israel. Uh, but I think you know w- one only needs to look to the Israeli uh, population itself to see how uh, vigorous debate over the direction Israel should take is not in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, Hayeretz is not. Pulling any punches, there are. Oh, all right, it's right. That's you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Right. So and and and, and so I think that that's um, uh, you know a real challenge that the American Jewish. Uh, community has in our time is to have um, a, a a loving and open conversation about Israel that includes um, an opportunity for uh, for for people to express their uh, uh, dissatisfaction with certain policies and decisions the Israeli government makes. I don't, you know, I the, I don't always agree with uh, what uh, the with what Netanyahu, for example, uh, um, uh, with his leadership, and I didn't uh, agree with uh, Omert, and uh, there, you know, I was young at the time. I didn't agree with everything Rabin was doing. So I think that there, uh, that doesn't mean I don't love Israel. That doesn't mean I don't support Israel. That doesn't mean I, I don't uh, fight vigorously for a strong future for Israel. But I have, as Israelis do and Jews around the world, have differences of opinion about how best to go about that. And I think that that's fine. Rick Klein, uh, in closing, sure. you are the wise son who munches on matzah well before Passover, even before <laughs> winter has ended, as you just told us before the show. Close it's a us good out. Breakfast. Yeah, it is. A, I, I don't know about that, man. Uh, you it, know, I'm just trying. Try the Sephardic that. routine. You'll you'll appreciate the <laughs> rice much more. Uh, tell me where this is going. I mean, give me the if-then scenario. If this turns out to bomb, uh, if he, if it looks like an overstep, uh, you know, how is this going to play into what likely? I mean, you you don't know what 2017 is going to look like, but suppose it's. Bush versus Clinton all over again, um, and Congress reshuffles. Uh, what's your gut on this? What's going to happen? What are the implications, both for Tel Aviv and for Washington? I think far bigger than Netanyahu's speech is whether there's a deal or not. And there's a there's been a cautious optimism inside the administration for a long time around getting a deal. And then if there is a deal, that's huge. And how does that how does that play domestically? And does Congress block it in some way? Uh, kind of fuels a different a different debate. I think broadly that the, we we will be having a national security foreign policy discussion uh, over the next year and a half with regard to the presidential election. Whether the candidates Hillary Clinton or some other Democrat whether it's Jeb Bush or some other Republican, we're going to have some variation of did these these last eight years make us safer? Did they make us more secure? Did they improve our status or place in the world? Are we happier with where we stand as a country uh, vis-a-vis the rest of the world than we were after the eight years of a Bush foreign policy? Those are the questions that are going to dominate. And you're starting to see a, a, a much more aggressive 
with most of the Republican candidates, with the exception of Rand Paul, who, who, who really does stand different, uh, differently on policy stuff, but most of the Republicans are outlining a very muscular approach to American foreign policy. And I don't know that they've all commented on, on a, a nuclear deal with Iran, uh, but I think other than Rand Paul, who's been on the record saying that, uh, you know, give basically give peace a chance. Let's see. Let's see what the president can develop. They've all said, no, don't trust them. This is a bad deal. This is a this is a mistake. We should be doing more sanctions are working. We should be doing more sanctions, not less. So that's the big debate that'll play out. And I, does this does this visit change where the Democratic Party, the Republican Party stands with regard to that argument? I don't think so. Um, I'm, I'm not even sure that it changes the the reality of a deal and the, and the fallout of a deal. But this is a big argument that this is that this is part of. And Netanyahu, the one reason he's getting a lot of attention for this is that um, he's not the only one who believes this way. There are plenty of American politicians and, and plenty of American interest groups and voters who agree. And you heard it here first. Rick Klein, thank you so much for joining us. Rick Klein is ABC News's political director joining us out of D.C. during Netanyahu's big speech week. Uh, thank you so much, sir. Thank you. And Rabbi Michael Knopf, may I get an amen, an official amen from you? Amen. Do you certify this this conversation? <laughs> this conversation your... was kosher. It was kosher for Passover, no less. <laughs> Full kosher disclosure. for Purim. Kosher for Purim. Kosher for Purim. We didn't even mention Purim. Lots of hamantashen. Let's let's have a kiddish lunch after this. Let's do it. Don't leave yeah. the studio. Full disclosure, we are on WRIR, SoundCloud, iTunes, CompuServe, Prodigy, AOL. Look for us soon on Stitcher. And uh, we love having you. Twitter, Full D Radio, Facebook, Full D Radio, and we will be back at you next week. Thank you so much.